Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So we left off last week, in the middle of discussing, he was discussing God's knowledge. That when we say that the Jewish soul derives from God's wisdom, he says God's wisdom is not like human wisdom. Human wisdom is only an aspect of your soul. But God and His wisdom are one and the same, are inseparable. And therefore, when we say that the soul is rooted in God's wisdom, it means, in other words, that the soul is rooted in God's essence. So he's explaining what that means, that, that God's wisdom is different than our wisdom. And he quotes Maimonides, Maimonides describes, and this is one of the principles of faith, one of the mitzvot in the Torah. Just like there's a mitzvah to believe in God, there's an additional mitzvah, as expressed in the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, to believe in the unity of God. And Maimonides explains what that means is not only to believe that there's only one God and that God has no partners, that there aren't any other gods or powers or forces in the universe, but it means something much more profound. It means something much deeper. What it means is that God is an absolute unity, which is very difficult for us to imagine and to fathom because we can only extrapolate from our own personal experience. We can relate to the world based on our own experience, our own knowledge. (laughs) Well, our knowledge, we are a composite. We are made up of many different parts. We're not an absolute, pure unity. We are made up of components. The body is made up of many limbs, many components, but even our soul is really made up of different components. Take knowledge, for example. Knowledge is not a pure, an absolute, undifferentiated unity. Knowledge is made up of three components. The person who knows, the intellectual ability, and then the information. You can separate the three. You have one without the other. You can have a person go through his whole life and not, and not pick up the information. The information is, is independent. And then you have the mind, the ability to understand, to think, to comprehend, to grasp a concept. And that can also be unused. And then you have the person. It's only when a person learns and studies that a person assimilates and absorbs information that they merge. The person, through his mind, merges with the information and he absorbs the information. But even after the information is absorbed within the person, you can still break it down. It's still three components. It's not an absolute unit. It's like a knot. You take three strings and you tie it together. But it's not an absolute unity. Although once you know information, once you know knowledge, you know something, you could never unknow it. <laughs> you know, once you understand 2 plus 2 is 4, you could never understand otherwise, ever. Once you've assimilated and you've absorbed the concept, you get the concept, you get it. You have it. You can't, even under torture, they can force you to say that 2 plus 2 is 6. But they can't force you to understand it. It's impossible. Once you get it, you get it. You understand it, you understand it. So it, it is as far... As a human being goes, it's the closest we get to being unified, that when something becomes unified with you, when you absorb and it becomes inseparable from you, becomes a part of you. Once it becomes a part of you, you can't lose it. You can't separate it from yourself. 
It's not like clothes. Clothes you can put on, you can take off. Like thought. I can think whatever I want. I can think two plus two is five. I can think two plus two is six. It's just a thought. It's a clothes. It's external. I can change it. But once you understand, understanding is very internal. Once you understand something, it's as, as internal as you can get. Well, you've internalized it. You've absorbed it. It has become part of you. I, I can no longer remove it. Like when you eat food, you digest it. It becomes part of your blood. You can't take it away. It's, it has been absorbed and assimilated by you. So it's, the, it's, it's as internal as you get, but still, it's an external knowledge. It's made up of components, which is why our knowledge is objective, detached. We can know something, and yet it doesn't affect us. It doesn't inspire us, doesn't move us, doesn't change us. The person remains indifferent. I know this bit of information, and so what? So I know it. So I, I have another piece of information. I store it away in my mind. And it makes no difference to me. So the person remains totally unaffected by the knowledge. So even though you've absorbed it and you've assimilated it and you've internalized the knowledge, but it hasn't been internalized by the person. The personality, the character, the person is very detached and and actually the intellectual prides himself in his de detachment. The very assumption of intellect is detachment, objectivity, observing from a distance, impartial. And I'm just learning information. And it's just interesting, intellectual curiosity. But does it change me? Does it affect me? Or does it make a difference if it affects me or not? Am I less brilliant if it doesn't affect me? Will the world consider you less brilliant? If you understand and you make a medical breakthrough and a medical discovery that smoking is bad for you, you'll get a Nobel Prize, whether you smoke or not. What does, have to, what does one have to do with the other? You may behave in a way that's totally contradictory to, to, your, to your understanding. So, does that make you less of a scientist? Does that make you less of a professional? Less of a genius. What does one have to do with the other? So the whole approach of intellect, of the university of intellect, and the mind, is very cool, very detached. I, I'm not taking it to heart. I don't take it to heart. I'm an enlightened person. I can step back. I can see the bigger picture. I can look at it from a very detached point of view. So you see that intellect, you can, it's not an absolute unity. The person knows the information, learns the information, and yet... It remains totally um, remote from him. Doesn't affect you. Doesn't change you. This is uh, this is our typical knowledge. This is our conscious knowledge. So the knowledge is not an absolute unity. The person is one place. The mind is another place. The information, and as as unified as they become, as absorbed as it becomes, it still remains. They still remain far apart. But God's knowledge is different. God's knowledge, you cannot separate God's knowledge from, from God himself. And Maimonides says this is very difficult for us to relate to. Because it's, it's not the way we work. It's not the way our conscious knowledge works. He doesn't say it's impossible to relate. Because it is the way our subconscious knowledge works. Which we really access. We all have it inside. But we really access it. 
at least not deliberately and consciously. But occasionally we do have that experience when there's knowledge that like emerges, not from the brain, abstract. It's almost a knowledge that, that emerges from our very being, from our kishkes. Something stirs inside of you and suddenly, yes, I know it, and I always knew it. It's, it's a knowledge that changes you. It's a knowledge that, that's etched into your being. It comes from within you. It inspires you. It's almost like a revelation. Something unexpected, something that comes from a very deep down inside of you, very deep place. And you feel it, you can experience it, because it's a part of you. It's not abstract. Our ordinary human consciousness is very abstract, very remote, abstract, distant. And most of our learning happens on that level. But occasionally we do get a glimpse, we do experience an awareness and a knowledge that comes from a very deep down inside of us. A very deep down level of awareness. That we're without, that's there, but we're, we don't access it. We're not aware of it. Because it's subconscious. And then something emerges from that place. And something stirs inside of you. And we feel like our whole being knows. It's not just the knowledge my head knows. My whole being knows. And you can physically feel it. Because it touched, it touched your very being. You kishkes. Gut, your gut, it's a gut knowledge, we call it gut knowledge, it's, it's your whole being, your whole body knows it, it's not, just, it's not just abstract, intellectual. That's a knowledge where you can't separate between subjective, objective, the observer and the information, because they're, they're, they're one and the same. The information is not something external, something outside of you, it's like comes from within you. The information, you become totally unified with the information. And this is the level that all the Kabbalists strive for. <coughs> what the Kabbalists strive for to achieve, they try to achieve the level of Dveikut. Dveikut means where you become totally unified with the object. There's a big difference between being emotional And the veikut. Emotional is also external. I'm attracted, I'm not attracted. I love, I hate, I like, I dislike. These are all very external labels. And it's even more external to the person than the intellect. The intellect is much more internal. Emotion is, very, is how I relate to something outside of me. Am I attracted to something outside of me? Do I love it? Do I hate it? Am I repulsed by it? Am I drawn towards it? Do I feel warm? Do I feel... But it's, it's how I relate to something outside of me. The veikut, however, is where the person becomes one with the object. You can't separate. You become, it becomes like part of you. And... You lose any sense, of, any sense of, uh, of separation. It's a level where a person hears very deeply about something. Because you, you have become one with the object. And that's the goal, the aspiration of the Kabbalists. That they try to reach a level of Dveikut. Where not only they have a philosophical understanding of God, or they have an emotional reaction to God. 
but they're trying to achieve something much, much deeper than that. They're trying to become one with God. They could, inseparable, an expression, as a light is connected to its source, inseparable from its source. Where they totally lose their ego. There's no sense of I, there's no sense of separation. You don't know where you begin and, and, and God ends. You become, you merge, you become totally one. And that's a very, very deep level of awareness where something stirs very deep inside of your soul, of your very being, touches your very core and essence, and really gets to you deep down. That's a type of knowledge where you cannot separate. You can no longer separate in the knower, the mind, and the information, what you're knowing. They actually, it's like a pure, they become like a pure, absolute, simple unity. We're inseparable. You don't know where one begins and one ends. And it's a knowledge that comes from yourself. It's like self-knowledge, self-awareness. When you're aware of yourself, it's, you're not, you don't know something outside of you. It's anything external. You're aware of yourself. So the knowledge comes from within you. And what are you aware of? Also you. So it's, it's, it's absolutely one. It's not two separate things that merge. It's not like you're writing and you have the ink and you have the paper and they come together as, as unified as possible, as close as possible. But it's more like when you carve into the stone. The letters are etched into the stone. So you can't separate between the stone and the letters. They're, they're, they're absolutely one and one. So too, the knowledge, self-awareness, is awareness that comes from within you. So also there's a type of deep down level of awareness where you cannot separate. There's no more objectivity. You lose your objectivity. But not because you're emotional. Emotional is a very low level. It's much lower than intellectual. People are very emotional, can't think objectively, can't think straight. They're clouded. Their emotions cloud their vision. People who are intellectual pride themselves that they're enlightened, that they're above their emotions. They, they have clarity. They can see the bigger picture. They don't let their emotions uh, get carried away. But here we're talking about something deeper than intellect, than our superficial conscious, ego-conscious intellectual awareness. We're talking about a much deeper level of awareness a level of awareness where you merge, where you become devekut, where you totally become totally one and inseparable from, from, from the object. There is no separation between subjective, objective, you and the object. As the modern physics knows, has discovered, that when you go to the deepest level of reality, on the level of the electromagnetic level, on the atomic level, you can no longer separate between the observer and the observed. The scientist who's observing the atom will actually change, change and have, have an effect on the atom. You, you can't separate. On that level, there's no separation. There's artificial division between the person who's watching the experiment and the object breaks down. On the deepest level, they're totally inseparable. The object and the subject become totally one and the same. They all become inseparable and part of one whole which is very difficult for our rational mind to understand. When, when, they, when the scientists discovered this breakthrough, it blew their mind. Because it totally, it totally revolutionized the way we look at reality. It goes against, it's counterintuitive. Because the way we experience reality, there's objectivity, and I, I look back, and I stand back, and I watch, and I observe, and I'm intellectual, and I'm on it, objective. But this whole, that whole notion had to be thrown out the window. Because when you go deeper, 
it's no longer viable. You can no longer separate between the person, the observer, and the observed. They become absolutely one. They're part of the same. And this is our subconscious level of knowledge and awareness. Our own inner atomic level of reality. Which most of us don't access. Most of us are not even aware it exists. But it is there, nevertheless. So he doesn't say it's impossible for us to understand. He says it's difficult for us to understand. Because in our ordinary life, we don't usually experience knowledge on that level. Awareness on that level. But if we use our mind and we can try to picture and imagine, we could imagine that God's mind is different than our mind. When we say that God knows, it's not like our knowledge. God and his knowledge and his awareness and and what he knows is all one. Because everything is created from within God. And therefore God knows himself and he knows everything. There's no separation. There's no outside. It's It's not an external knowledge. God knows himself and therefore he knows everything that's happening in this world. Down to the amoeba. Every movement in this world, every thought that we have, everything that we say, everything that we speak, our emotions, our reactions, God knows and feels everything, just like a person feels himself. You feel every bone in your body. You feel a scratch on your pinky. You feel immediately, because it's you. So too, God feels and knows everything that's happening in the entire universe simultaneously. All our thoughts, all our inner emotions, all our inner struggles, down to the amoeba, every, every creature's struggle, whatever it is, God knows and feels everything to the tiniest detail. There's nothing, because it all comes from within God. God knows himself, and therefore he knows everything. So the ty- God's knowledge is, is different than our knowledge. God's knowledge is not external. You can't separate between God and the, the, his, his mind, so to speak, and the knowledge, the information. So my mind says it's very difficult for us to relate to. Because we human beings were not created that way on a conscious level, on our ordinary daily level. Deep mystics who delve very deep into, into the soul, delve deep into their subconscious. Or modern physicists who go very deep down into reality, they are open to this whole different type of knowledge and knowing and, and this whole reality. But for most people, it's like speaking Chinese. They have no idea what you're talking about. There's the knower, and there's the knowledge, and there's the, and, and the mind, and then there's the information, the knowledge. Three separate components that unite and merge, but not an absolute merger. It's not an absolute unity. The person remains unmoved and untouched by knowledge. We're all very rich in knowledge. If we lived up to half of what we knew, <laughs> the world would be a much better place. But the knowledge doesn't affect us. In schools, we're exposed to the best information. Cream of the crop. But does it affect us? Does it change us? Does it inspire us? What What does one have to do with the other? Information doesn't. Because it's external. It's detached. It's objective. But God's knowledge is different. God and his knowledge and what he knows are one and the same. And therefore, when we say that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's mind, in God's wisdom, like a child. A child is rooted in the brain of his father. The sperm comes from the brain of the father through the spine and, and then it materializes in the sperm. That it all comes from the brain of the father. So too, um, when we say that the Jewish soul is rooted, so to speak, in God's wisdom, in the supernal wisdom, it's not just God's wisdom. But God and his wisdom are inseparable, are one and the same, and therefore... What we're saying, in other words, is that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's essence. We are literally a piece of the divine essence. 
Every Jew has literally inside of himself a piece of the divine essence. That's the definition of the Jewish soul. That's what makes us Jewish. Each and every one of us carries within us a piece of the divine essence. Uh, Maimonides continues. Let's uh, read. Maimonides continues, and this is not within the power of any man to comprehend clearly. He says any man. Clearly. He doesn't say you can't understand it at all. Okay. He says it's hard to understand it clearly because you can only understand things clearly something from your own experience, from your own ordinary human conscious experience. But this type of knowledge that we're describing here is not in our ordinary human experience. So it's difficult for us to understand it. We, we could understand it, we can imagine it, we can picture it, but not clearly. But we do have some an idea. We do have an idea, a concept, that God's mind is different than our mind. We could relate to that. That, you know, we are not God. By definition, we are created beings, and therefore we, God is an absolute unity, and we aren't. We are a composite. We are made up of components, of parts, so to speak. Not like a machine, different parts, but in concept, we're made up of different parts. The Sonic has this ability, though? Much, much more than us. So he can't comprehend this idea. This yeah, but he's, he's talking about the ordinary person. Right. The Torah speaks about the majority of people. He's talking about the majority of people. The majority of people, this is a very, very difficult concept to really picture in your mind. You're trying to picture, trying to relate to. It's hard to relate to something that you don't have in your experience. Try describing to a blind person what, what sight is all about. It's impossible. He, do, he, he doesn't have, the, he never, he's never seen in his life. You can't understand something you don't have. Try imagining a sixth sense or a seventh sense. Right? You have eyes, you have ears, you have nose. Imagine another sense. It's impossible. Impossible. In all your science fiction, all your imagination, you can picture a thousand years, <laughs> Martian years, a thousand eyes, you know, but you can't picture something you don't have. Now, is God limited to five senses? God could have created ten senses. Could have created a hundred senses. Could have created a thousand senses. Our whole universe is so narrow, is so tiny to God. But, but this is our boundary. We can't think beyond our boundary. We can't even imagine anything beyond our boundary. Our world begins and ends with the five senses. We can't imagine anything beyond. So he's saying it's difficult for us to imagine, to picture, to relate to God's type of knowledge. Because we don't experience it. But very rarely. So in the image of God then is doesn't mean literally. Right. When we say created in the image of God. That he'll explain in the next chapter. That since God emanates from within himself God's intellect and God's emotions and God's speech and God's thought and God's action, so too we, that's our structure. Our personality and our character has the very same structure. Just like we talk about God's willpower and God's pleasure and God's wisdom and understanding and knowledge and God's emotions and God's love and strength and compassion and, and God's uh, communication and relationship to out, others outside of himself, so to speak. So we have the same structure. So we're created in God's image that this is our personality. We also have the three minds. We have wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. We have, we have the heart. But of course you can't compare our mind to God's mind. Exactly, that's the point. You can't compare, when you say you were created in God's image, it doesn't mean we're God. You can't compare our mind to God's mind. Our mind, the conscious mind, is not like God's mind. 
God's mind is an absolute unity, a pure, unadulterated absolute unity. And our mind is, is absolutely not a unity. The opposite. Right? Usually, people, when they look at detail, we, we lose the, the, the overall picture. But the Rebbe, when you see him speaking, he can take a de- a, the detail and reflect through that the overall experience. You can see how he can overcome that separation or actually make the experience even bigger than what it is. That's a, that's a good analogy. The whole. This is a concept. You see, as we get deeper and deeper into reality, you know, modern physics, the cutting edge of modern physics, you know, they're beginning to understand a lot of these concepts. The New York Times magazine a few years ago had a front page cover that modern physics is beginning to sound more and more like the Kabbalah. 150 years ago, the so-called great Jewish historians were embarrassed with the Kabbalah. They were ashamed of the Kabbalah. Look at this, this, I mean, I wouldn't even use the words they used. This, this embarrassment, the superstition. You know, we're living in the enlightenment. We're living in the, you know, logic, the light of science. And here you have all this mystical, you know, not, you know nonsense and all this, this you know, backward and un- irrational. Today, <laughs> after Einstein, after quantum mechanics, they're beginning to understand what the Kabbalah and the Zohar has written thousands of years ago. Because the Kabbalah was the cutting edge. They understand all this language, the language of paradoxes, the language of matter as energy. And what we're discussing, there's no separation, there's no separation between subjective and objective. And the whole idea that the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. That on the deepest level, the world is not just a composite of like a technical... Of, of components put together. But the truth is that there's a whole. There's a holistic understanding where, where the, there's one dynamic whole. And the details just reflect this whole. Instead of working your way from the bottom up, from the technicality and the details, working your way to the whole, it's just the opposite. There is a point, a singular point, a whole. And this whole dynamic whole, which is greater than the sum total of its parts, reflects itself in, in all its components. And that's why all the components are interrelated and interconnected. And the best analogy for that is the human body, as he'll describe in a moment, a few moments. That the human organism is exactly that way. Yes, we are, if you look at ourselves, if you look at the human body externally, the human body is is made up of many comp- uh, components. It's a composite, 248 limbs, 365 veins. And, but if you look deeper, you realize that the person is really one entity. When you walk down the street, you feel that you're a bag of bones, and you don't feel yourself. A healthy person doesn't even feel himself. You're one entity, one dynamic entity. And that one entity expresses itself through the mind and the heart and eyes and ears and nails and everything that it's all part. And therefore, the body is all interrelated and interconnected. Every last organ is connected with every other organ. The same blood courses through the whole entire body, from the brain down to the toenail. It's all interrelated and interconnected. Your toenail hurts, your, your mind can't think. It's all connected because it's not about separate 
entities that just are put together or tied together. It's not from, from the whole perspective. There's no separate entity. There's only one entity. There's only one reality. It's not about the heart or the liver or the gut. Or this. There's only one reality. There's one entity. And each one is expressing that entity in its own unique way. But they're all together. They're all one. They're absolutely one. The heart and the liver and the gut. And that's why the body works so harmoniously. Because it's really one entity. And the same is true with the Jewish people. The Jewish people is one soul that expresses itself in 14 million bodies. Each Jew with his own flavor, his own unique way. Just like each organ in the body has their own unique purpose and function. A heart is a heart. A heart is not a liver. And every Jew has their own unique function. But the truth is, on the deepest level, we're all one and the same. It's, well, there's only one entity, there's one, there's one person, one soul. And that soul expresses itself in all, in all these different... So, the truth is, as we get closer to the time of Mashiach, even the scientist in the laboratory is coming to all these truths. That is one of the signs of that we're living in the Messianic era. That even the scientist in the laboratory is coming to all these truths that the Torah has been teaching us for thousands of years. The unity, the underlying unity of everything. That the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. That in the deepest level, this whole dichotomy between subjective and objective, the knower, the knowledge, the information, all breaks down. There is no dichotomy. There is no separation. There's an absolute unity, an inherent unity. And that therefore, every bit of information that you learn or you're aware of has to change you and affect you. Because if the truth is, on the deepest level, there is no separation. So you can't just be aware of a bit of information and go back to sleep. That bit of information has to inspire you, has to change you, has to challenge you, has to wake you up, has to affect you. It's not just abstract. That whole notion of abstraction is old-fashioned, is outdated, is superficial. The whole scientific notion, the classical scientists, Classic science, the science of the 19th century, in which most schools are still stuck in, that whole approach of, of detachment and objectivity is out the window. When you get down to the real truth, you can no longer separate between the knower and the known. You have to, you, we are one. And, and, um, and therefore, the Torah gives us the implications of all these truths. If that's the truth, then it has to change your life. That's why the Torah is called Torah. Torah is called a guidebook, a teaching. It's not just an intellectual exercise, stimula stimulating exercise. The Torah, everything you learn in the Torah has to be transformed into a guidance. How is this going to guide me? How is this going to teach me? How is this going to inspire me? How is it going to move me and change me and affect me? That's why the Torah is truth. The Torah is holy. We kiss a Torah with reverence. It's holy. It's godly. It's divine. It's God's mind. It's God's mind, and God's mind, there's no separation between knower and knowledge and information. They become one. And that's the effect the Torah has on us. And that's what the Torah is demanding. You can't just learn Torah from a detached point of view. Torah has to change you, and Torah demands. So what are you going to do about this information? How are you going to change it? How is this going to change your life? Change, ultimately change your behavior? So this is the type of knowledge that as we get closer to the Messianic era, 
this perspective is becoming much more available to us. And that's why the Rebbe said, if you open your eyes, you'll see that we're living in the Messianic era because the whole world is coming to this, to this level, level of knowledge. The inseparable unity of all things. You know, now we know if you, if you take an atom and you divide it in half, and one atom, one half is one end of the world, the other half is the other end of the world, whatever you do with one half of the atom automatically will happen to the other half. Thousands of miles apart. Because they're inseparable. It's not, it's not components. A machine, you break in half, you take the machine in one place, you take the other half in another place, I tinker with this half, it has no effect in the other half. But that's on the external world that we live in, the external superficial world that we live in, the materialistic world. But when you go deeper to the truth, on the atomic level, there's no separation. One half is connected with the other half. They're inseparable. So it's a much deeper, it's a, much, it's a whole different way of, of understanding reality. And all of this is being exposed today. All of this is emerging. And not just in the synagogue, in the holy books. It's emerging in the scientific lab. So if you realize the times we're living in, we're living in a very, very special time, very special age. While most scientists are still stuck in the, in, in the dinosaur era, in the classical 19th century materialistic evolutionary stance, which is so outdated, it's not even funny. Modern physics is galloping so far ahead and it's coming closer and closer to the truths of the Torah, the truths that the Zohar and the Kabbalah has been teaching us for thousands of years. So Maimonides says that, that the ordinary person Judging from his own personal experience, from his own personal experience of knowledge, what knowledge means to us, and we know that our knowledge is a composite of three parts, it's difficult it's for us to clearly picture the concept, the idea that God's knowledge is an absolute unity. That you can't separate in God and, and, the, and his ability to know and his knowledge, his awareness. That it's not anything external, but God is all internal, it's all absolutely one. It's like God knowing himself. Inseparable. Okay, as it is written. As it is written, can you find and understand God by searching? And it is also written, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. And consequently, your human thoughts cannot possibly comprehend my thoughts. You're trying to understand God's thoughts from your own thoughts. You're trying to extrapolate. He says it's impossible. The verse says he can't. Because God's thoughts are inherently different than our thoughts. Continue. Since his wisdom is one with God himself, as has been shown, it follows that the Jewish soul which stems from divine wisdom, as stated above, actually derives from God himself. Now, so where we left off last week, uh, there were many Kabbalists, many Jewish philosophers who rejected Maimonides' whole approach. Uh, the most famous was the Maral of Prague, Rabbi Yehuda Loi of Prague in the 16th century, and he, chief rabbi of Prague, he's famous, he made the golem that saved the Jewish people during, uh, uh, from blood libels and uh, pogroms. He was a, one of the greatest Kabbalists, actually a great, great, great uh, grandfather of Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. And he wrote very uh, revolutionary books in Jewish thinking and rooted in the Kabbalah 
And um, he lived a very ripe old age in his 90s. He was very prolific, and his books are exceptional. You know, very original thinking and very spiritual and mystical and very, very profound. So he has a whole polemic with Maimonides. He says, how could Maimonides? To Maimonides, God was pure intellect. That was the highest, the highest level you can think of, is intellect. In Maimonides' world, in the world of the Jewish philosophers, the mind, the intellect was the greatest. God was perfect intellect. An intellect that's difficult for us to fathom. An intellect where you cannot separate between the objective and the subjective, between the knower and the known. And they're inseparable and one and the same. But nevertheless, God is intellect, pure intellect, perfect intellect. And therefore, how do you get close to God? Through philosophy, proper philosophy, Jewish philosophy. And you have to know the 13 principles of faith because that's the ABC. You want to go to, you want to enter into the world to come. After 120 years, you want to go to paradise, the soul, this is the ABC. If you don't know the ABC, you don't know the language. The ABC is the language of Jewish philosophy, of understanding God, then you simply have no way of, of living in God's eternal bliss and being connected with, with, um, with God in the afterlife. So this was the philosophical approach to Judaism. Maral of Prague, Abihu Lovi, who had a much more mystical approach, he argues vehemently with Maimonides. He says, how can you call God perfect intellect? Intellect itself is a definition. Not only is God infinite, that God's intellect is infinite, and His intellect is perfect and divine, but God is, is undefined. You can't describe God as being intellectual, intellect. Because intellect in itself is a definition, is limiting. God is beyond any definition. God is infinite. The Kabbalists talk about God's being infinite. Although it's never mentioned once in the Torah, we, the Torah refers to God by His name, is the seven different names that God is referred to in the Torah, Kel, Elohim, Adnai, Yudke, Vavke, Shakai, Tzavokai, etc., we don't find in the Torah, we only find that the Ur in Saf, God's infinite light, is hinted at, but it's never clearly spelled out. But this is the whole essence of the Kabbalah, highlighting and emphasizing the God being in Saf, God being infinite and undefined. So to really call God, Ur in Saf, the infinite, truly infinite, God has to be undefined. Because the moment you define Him, He's no longer infinite. Because intellect is, has a definition, intellect is not emotion. It's, it's different. So if, even if it's a perfect intellect, an infinite intellect, but the fact that you're defining it by intellect is already, is already a, um, a definition. And God, by, by His being truly infinite, is, is not only infinite, but is undefined. You can't define God. You can't label God. You can't define God. God is not intellect. God is not emotion. God is none of the above. He says, and that's why the rabbis never referred to God as Haseichel, the intellect pure intellect, the perfect intellect, which was the ideal for Socrates, the ideal for Plato and, and 
um, you know, for all, all the, the um, Aristotle, all the great philosophers, that was their ideal. Their ideal was pure intellect, and the angels are great intellects, and God is the perfect intellect, the cause of all causes. But the Jewish, the Torah, refers to God as HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One. What does holy mean? What does the word holy mean? Kadosh, Kedusha, holy. Intellect is not holy. What is the definition of holy? Holy means separate, transcendent, above. It means God is something totally different. God transcends the entire known universe and our entire frame of reference. God is above our entire frame of reference. To define God with intellect, you can't define God by intellect. This is our boundary, our boundary. Just like you can't define God by the five senses, God is beyond the five senses. God is beyond intellect. This is our frame of reference. Our frame of reference is the five senses, the mind, the intellect, the emotions, our concepts, numbers, concepts, ideas, past, present, future. That's our whole frame of reference. That's our reality. We can't think outside of the box. We don't realize that there's a whole other reality that's beyond our whole frame of reference. God, you can't fit God into a straitjacket. Don't call God, the Torah never calls God Haseichel, the perfect intellect. God is not Seichel. It's putting God into a straitjacket. God is infinite. God transcends our entire frame of reference. Not only God transcends time and space, just like God transcends time and space, God transcends concepts, ideas, the whole idea of intellect, the whole world of intellect. God's reality is beyond that and transcends it. We don't know what it is. We're not God. Just like a blind person can't know what the sense of sight is, because he simply doesn't have that experience, it's impossible for us to know what God is. All we can say is that God is infinite, or in self, God is undefined. We have no idea. The moment we open our mouth, it's not God. Because the moment we use a word to describe something, it's already, it's already a definition, a description, and it's already off. It's not God. What is God? We cannot know what God is. Because God totally transcends us. He transcends our whole frame of reference. We are not God. We don't have God within us. We're not God. And we don't know what God is. To say that we can know God is like saying I can grab God with my fingers. That's a ridiculous statement. You can grab God with your hands. So anyone who thinks that he can wrap his mind around God and understand God and comprehend God, it's impossible. You can't, just like you can't grasp God with your hands, you cannot grasp God with your mind. God is not mind. God is not intellect. What is God? We have no idea. All we know is God is holy. Totally transcends our whole universe. Known and unknown universe. God totally transcends infinite, orient of undefined. So he argues vehemently with Maimonides, who defines God, that God is the perfect knowledge. God is the perfect knower. And the perfect knowledge and God and His knowledge and, his, and what's known is all one and the same and inseparable. He says it's all fine and good. But to call God intellect is already the meaning, is already a definition, is already a distortion. That's not God. God is holy. What is God? What is God's substance? We have no idea. So therefore, the question remains. We saying that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's wisdom. According to the morale of Prague, 
God's wisdom is not God. Because God is not wisdom. God is undefined. Beyond any definition, beyond any description. Wisdom to God is the same like, like, like the hand, actions, totally external to God. So if the soul is rooted in God's wisdom, it's not rooted in God's essence. So how can we say that the Jewish soul is literally a piece of God, a piece of the divine essence? So he explains that firstly the Kabbalists agreed with Maimonides. The Kabbalists disagree with Rabbi Hudalo. They agree with Maimonides, as we find in the Kabbalah of, of Rabbi Moshe Kordaviro, who lived at the time of the Arizal, and it was like his teacher and before the Arizal, he was considered one of the greatest Kabbalists that ever lived. He writes clearly, he takes Maimonides' approach that God is perfect knowledge and God, the knower and the knowing are absolutely one and the same and inseparable. But he says, even, even the Arizal, the greatest Kabbalist that ever lived, on whose um, foundation Rabbi Yehuda Lo, the Maral, built his whole approach that God is infinite and God totally transcends any definition, any description. Even according to the Arizal, what we're saying here is correct, what Maimonides is saying is correct. Because the Arizal taught us that, yes, God is truly undefined, but God also has the power and the ability to concentrate himself and to emanate from himself, and to reveal from within himself intellect, supernal intellect, divine intellect, God's intellect. And therefore, on that level, we can say, we can truly say that God and his wisdom are absolutely one and the same. After God has condensed himself and concentrated himself, and so to speak, condensed his infinite self into into the defined a world of intellect, God has that ability. Why? Because if you truly believe that God is infinite and undefined, then to say that God could only express himself in an infinite way is also limiting. Because what you're saying is God is infinite and not finite. That's also a limitation. That's also a definition. To call God ain't soft that God is infinite, is, that in itself is a definition. Because what you're saying is that God could only express himself in a transcendent way, in an infinite way, that alone is limiting to God. If God is truly undefined, then God could do anything. So God could take his infinite self and concentrate it and reveal it in a, in a very finite setting. And where do we see this? Where do we see this expressed? In the Torah portion that we just read? In the Holy of Holies. A, the temple was a place where God's infinite self is revealed. That's the definition of a temple, a holy place. Where God's holiness was revealed. His infinite self is revealed. In the temple, he had ten miracles. A Jew went to the temple with his naked eye. He saw on a daily basis ten miracles. One miracle after the next. That was natural in the temple. Because God revealed his transcendent self. And therefore, all the laws of nature were totally broken and shattered. And this, was in, and this inspired the Jew. When a Jew saw firsthand godliness. How all the laws of nature were suspended before his eyes. And that the whole world is really operating on a different level. It gave him a glimpse of God's holiness. Of God's 
divine self of God's infinite self and it reminded him that the whole world the whole world of nature that we're so caught up in that we, that we take for granted and that, we, that defines us that there's a reality beyond it that transcends the whole world of nature so this inspired a Jew and gave him the strength to be able to live a life of Torah mitzvah to go back to his farm go back to his business go back to his mundane daily life and, and live a godly life and live a Jewish life but then there was the Holy of Holies the Holy of Holies was a miracle within a miracle. It was a unique type of miracle that we don't find anywhere else. The rabbis say in the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies had a certain measurement. Ten cubits by, by twenty cubits. Approximately thirty feet by fifteen feet. And then it had the Ark. And the Ark, we read last week, had the cherubim, the cherubs. On top of the cover of the Ark, it had the cherubs with the wings. So the rabbi said, if you had three measuring sticks in the Holy of Holies, from one end of the room to the other end of the room, you would get 30 feet. If you took a measuring stick of the ark, you would get the measuring of the ark, two and a half cubits. So you have two measuring sticks already, right? One end of the room to the other is 30 feet. You had the ark had a certain measurement. Then, if he took another two measuring sticks from the wall of the room till the ark on this side, from the wall room to the ark on this side, he would end up with 15 cubits. As if the ark wasn't there. At the same time, simultaneously, <laughs> you, have, you, have, you have these four measuring sticks all out at the same time, and <laughs> 15 feet, the ark is not there, at the same time it is here, I'm measuring it. And the room didn't expand, the room didn't change, I have measuring it, it's 30 feet. It didn't widen, it didn't change. The ark didn't shrink. It's the exact size the Torah spells out. Otherwise, it wouldn't be holy. The room would not have holiness. It's only holy because the ark is precise measurements the Torah spells out. So it was a paradox. It took up space. It didn't take up space at the same time. Like, it's like a mind. A mind. <laughs> it's a trick. On the, it's like a pl- playing with your mind. It's, it's space and no space. We could understand a miracle with the laws of nature are suspended. So, so the laws of, of time and space are suspended. There is no space. You, 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 you fall into a hole where there is no time and there is no space. And, you know, the, science, science, the scientist uh, imagine or dream of a... You know, you could go into a hole and you end up in a different time or a different space. And you move from one place in one dimension to another dimension. That's fine. That's a world that transcends conventional world that we live in but to have at the same time where time and space is time and space is space and it's rigid and it's defined and it's there and at the same time there is no time and space this is squaring the circle this is a paradox this makes no sense this is stupefying how is it possible how can you square a circle it's impossible at the same time it's like putting an elephant through a needle hole not that you shrink the elephant and not that you expand the needle hole. The needle hole remains a needle hole. The elephant remains an elephant. And the elephant, as it, as it remains an elephant, goes through the needle hole. It's impossible. The human mind says impossible. That's exactly what happened in the Holy of Holies. Because the Holy of Holies expressed God's very essence. God's essence is God is not infinite. You can't define and limit God to being infinite. God is truly undefined. If He's truly undefined, He's neither infinite nor finite. He is both, and therefore He can combine the two in a play, in a paradoxical play. You'll have finite and infinite simultaneously at the same time, at the very same moment. 
So therefore, if God would not be able to emanate from himself wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, as the morale of Prague argues, if you say that God must be holy and God must be transcendent, and you cannot say that God and his intellect are one, God and his wisdom are one, then you're limiting God. Because just like God has the ability to reveal himself in an infinite way, God also has the ability to concentrate himself and manifest himself in a limited way. And God could take his infinite light and concentrate it in... And that's the power of Tzimtzum. The power of Tzimtzum is that God has the ability to focus and concentrate his infinite self and reveal it in a finite way. Not because God is finite. On the contrary, because God is so infinite, he even transcends being infinite. Not only does God transcend the finite, God even transcends the infinite. And therefore he's so transcendent, he transcends even the infinite, therefore he can bring the infinite into the finite. And that's what he did in the world of emanation. God emanated from himself these defined attributes. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, love, compassion. God is love. God is compassion. God is knowledge. God is wisdom. It's like saying that God is a finger. I mean, God is undefined. But God is so infinite, he transcends being infinite, therefore he can reveal himself and concentrate himself through tzimtzum, he can reveal himself and emanate from himself these attributes. So then you can truly say that these attributes are truly one with God. They're not separate from God. It's God's wisdom. It's supernal wisdom. It's holy wisdom. And therefore, when we say that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's wisdom, what we're really saying is that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's very essence. That every Jew has a piece of the divine essence inside it. Which also explains why a Jew is so paradoxical. Because we are a divine people. Everything about us is paradoxical. The nations of the world, the 70 nations have been watching us for, 70, for, for thousands of years. And they still can't figure us out. We're still an enigma, a riddle, a puzzle. They, don't figure, they can't figure us out. You know, either we are a nation apart. They can relate to the Amish. They can relate to monks, the Buddha. But to be simultaneously a nation apart, and yet simultaneously totally engaged in the world, taking the world head on, and yet simultaneously being apart, it doesn't go together. Either you're liberal or you're conservative. But to be both at the same time, to be the most compassionate people on the face of the world, and at the same time to be the most demanding people on the face of the world, Judging ourselves and living up to the highest level and the highest standard and, and pushing everyone else, demanding from everyone else to live up to the highest level. Usually people are very liberal, usually are very forgiving and soft and, and dumbed down standards to make everyone feel good. People who are very conservative, are very low in their compassion level. But a Jew is, is like two extremes at the same time. You don't find such a combination. It's rare. It's almost impossible. We are the most liberal, ultra-liberal people in the world. We love compassionate. Every, we love all God's creatures. Every human being is created in the image of God. We take care of animals, take care of trees. First environmental laws, all in the Torah. And then at the same time, we're the most demanding, uncompromising. We are a people of tremendous stubbornness, tremendous faith. Usually people of very strong faith, not, not the brightest bulbs. People who are very smart and very sharp and very deep and very brilliant, uh, not, not, the, not the most devout 
intense faith. Only within the Jew do you find this absolute paradox. You have brilliant minds like Moses, Maimonides, the Baal Shem Tev, the Rebbe, most brilliant minds in the face of the world. They can match any Einstein twice, ten times. In brilliance, in sheer brain power. And yet, they had the faith, the pure, simple, unadulterated faith of, of a Jewish child. A wholeness and purity, unquestionable faith, powerful faith, stubborn, beautiful, powerful faith. You don't find this combination. It's a paradox. But this is the story of the Jew. That's why the Jew is compared to oil. The olive oil. <laughs> So we, that's where we got the olive oil. Shemen in Hebrew comes from the word also the essence. Because since the Jew is the essence, since we come from divine essence, divine wisdom, which is really the divine essence, because the divine wisdom is really an expression of God's ultimate essence, that he's so undefined, he even transcends being infinite. He even transcends the level that the Kabbalists talk about. And therefore he can... Uh, uh, emanate from himself and express himself through wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. So it's really the ultimate expression of God's true essence, being truly undefined. Since a Jew comes from God's essence, that's why a Jew is like oil. Oil, on one hand, permeates everything. You can find oil in anything. You know, today we hear of all the al alternatives to oil. They, they make oil from anything, from rocks, from corn. from. If you squeeze anything, ultimately you'll find oil. But oil permeates everything. It drenches everything, it touches everything, but oil always remains apart. You pour oil with any other liquid, with water, the oil will always rise to the top. That's the story of the Jew. That's the nature of the Jew. That's the nature of essence. The essence permeates and touches every aspect. We touched every society we interacted with, came in contact with. We learned and absorbed the best that every society has to offer. And we, and we contributed and left our mark in every society that came in contact with. All the religions basically all copied Judaism. Yet, but we're a nation apart. At the same time, we're a nation apart. We engage in the world six days a week, and one day a week the world doesn't exist for us. Shabbos. We step off this world. We're in a different, we, 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 we go to heaven for, for a day. We're in a different world. We engage in the world, and one day is Yom Kippur. We're like angels. We're, we're a paradox. One day we're like angels, the next day we're back on Wall Street in the stock market. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. If you're an angel, you're sitting on a Tibetan mountaintop and you're meditating. How could you be an angel one day and a minute later you're back? How can you shuttle within one? It's like a paradox. But that's the story of the Jew. And that's why we're a mystery to the world. Till this very day, they've been studying us. We've never left the front pages. They've been studying us for 3,800 years and they still can't figure us out. Because it mystifies the mind. It defies all the laws of nature, all the, all, all the spiritual laws. It just defies everything. It's a total paradox. Total mystery, enigma, puzzle. We are a holy people, yet we have a land. It's the ultimate paradox. Eretz Yisrael. What does spirituality, religion have to do with the land? Spirituality is sitting and meditating on a mountaintop. Who cares about a piece of real estate? We're not nationalists. We don't define ourselves by the land. And yet... We have a land, a holy land. It's different than that. It's a land, earthy, but it's holy. Entirely different. This is the paradox of the Jew. That's why the nations of the world are so, 
are so focused on Israel because they, they can't figure this out. You land and you're holy. You're compassionate and yet you're tough. You're fighting, you're, you're tough. You're uncompromising and yet you're the most compassionate people on the face of the world. And yet the most uncompromising people. Most stiff-necked, stubborn. And yet the most loving. It's a total paradox. Every aspect of a Jew's life is a total, complete paradox. But that's really the story of our life. We have two souls. That is the ultimate paradox. We have a piece of the divine essence inside of us. And yet we have a very earthy soul, a very egotistical soul. We're pulled in two different directions. We're an angel and a beast together. That's the ultimate paradox. Body and soul is the ultimate paradox. We're physical and we're spiritual. The spiritual is pulling us upwards. The physical is pulling us downwards. The force of gravity. Our whole being is a paradox. That good and evil live together in this world are so intermingled, intermixed, is already the ultimate paradox. In heaven, you don't have it. In heaven, hell is hell and heaven is heaven. They don't mix. You can't mix the two. Two plus two is four, and three plus three is six. It's two, two separate worlds. You can't mix the two. How can you mix good and evil? When they're opposites. Only in this world could you have within the same block, within the same community, within the same person, good and evil. Good inclination and a negative inclination. Positive and negative. Within the same act. You can do something good, but your motivation is rotten. It's partially good. It's not clear. Poison, but something good can come out of the poison. You can heal. Too much of a good thing could kill you. It's so confusing. This, is, this whole world that we live in is a paradox. So this is the story of our life. So the soul is rooted, our essence is rooted in the essence of God. And that's why we have this paradox. That's why this world is so holy. He says we are literally a piece of God. Where does where the literal piece of God, where is that revealed? The peace of God within us, where is that revealed? Only in the world of touch, in this lowest of all worlds, in the physical world. As we said earlier, the philosopher Maimonides points out that although the Torah gives us an analogy for God, the eyes of God, the Torah speaks in the language of man, the ears of God, the Torah never uses the fingers of God. Because God does, a sense of touch is so earthy that you can't compare anything spiritual to the sense of touch. And yet it's only when the soul, the Jewish soul, comes into this world, we're born into this world, this earthy world of flesh and blood, it's only here that we're able to reveal our true root, our true essence, that we, we are rooted in the very essence of God. And that's why this world is so full of paradoxes, and that's why this world is the holiest of all the worlds, and that's why this world is the ultimate purpose of all the worlds. That's why Judaism places the emphasis on this world, unlike all other religions and all other mystical Movements which place the emphasis on the spiritual. That this world is a maya, an illusion, and the ultimate is the world to come. Judaism says the exact opposite. The Torah doesn't even mention once the world to come. The Torah speaks of this world. This is the ultimate. This is our rendezvous with God. This is the world of paradoxes. This is where our true root, our, in the core and essence of God, is truly revealed and manifest. It's only when the soul makes contact with the body in this world. When we interact with the body and we have to deal with all the negativity. We have to overcome the darkness and overcome our challenges and difficulties and wrestle and struggle and fight with the other soul. It's only then that the true root and source, our true root and source, is really revealed and manifest.
Many Jewish philosophers rejected Maimonides' description of God as the knower, the knowledge, and the known. In fact, they considered it erroneous to ascribe to God a description of any sort, even of the lofty level of intellect which Maimonides writes, inasmuch as description implies limitation, and God is inherently limitless. The Alter Rebbe therefore points out in this note that the Kabbalists agreed with Maimonides with the qualification that his concept does not apply to God's essence. He puts this in the note because this is for the reader who's a little more familiar, is a little more knowledgeable, and is aware of this raging controversy between the Maral, Rabbi Hudaloi, and the Jewish philosophers. So he has to address this point, but he addresses it in a note outside of the text how to show that, to reconcile that even, that even, that everyone agrees ultimately Maimonides is correct, and therefore when we say that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's wisdom, what we're really saying is that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's very essence. Continue. For his essence is truly infinite, even higher than the inscrutable level of knowledge that Maimonides refers to. Regarding his essence, those who disagree with Maimonides are correct in maintaining that God cannot be defined in terms of knowledge since he transcends it infinitely. Only after God limits the infinite light of his essence through the process of tzimtzum, progressive contractions, and thereby assumes the attribute of chokhmah, wisdom, only then can it be said of God that he is the knower, knowledge, and known. Note, the Kabbalists have agreed with him that God can be described as knower, knowledge, and known, as stated in Pardis of Rabbi Moshe Kodavero, even according to the Kabbalah of the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria of Blessed Memory, Maimonides' statement stands. The Kabbalah of the Arizal provides an even deeper insight into the limitlessness of God's essence, higher than even the level of knowledge to which Maimonides refers. Still, even according to the teachings of the Arizal, Maimonides' statement is acceptable with one proviso, however. This is so only when applied to the mystic principle of the clothing of the Ein Sof light by means of numerous contractions, simtsumim, in the vessels of the Sfirot of Chabad and Anachromen of Chokhmah, Bina, and Da'at, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, respectively. The triad of Sfirot, which represent divine intellect of the world of Etzilut, emanation. Through a process of self-limitation called simtsum, contraction, God manifests or, in Kabbalistic terminology, clothes his infinite essence, referred to by the Kabbalists as Ein Sof, the endless infinite one, in the Sefirot, which are his attributes. This manifestation occurs first in Atzilut, specifically in Chabad of Atzilut, divine intellect. Thus, at the level of Atzilut, God can indeed be defined in Maimonides' terms of knower, knowledge, and known, that is, intellect, but not higher than Atzilut. Above the word of Atzilut, the unknowable God cannot be defined. Accordingly, in terms of the Kabbalistic scale, Maimonides had nothing to say about God except from the world of Atzilut and down. As explained elsewhere, the Ein Sof, blessed be he, is infinitely exalted over and transcends the essence and level of Chabad. In fact, the level of Chabad is regarded as being equally inferior as material action in relation to him. Thus it is written, you have made them all with wisdom. You have conceived them all with wisdom would seem more appropriate. Conceiving, not making, is surely the proper function of God's wisdom. 
you have made them all with wisdom indicates, however, that to God, wisdom, the highest level within the world, is as lowly as a siya, the lowest level. End of note. He said the verse should have said, you conceive them with wisdom. With wisdom you don't make, you don't build with wisdom, you, you, you conceive with wisdom. So he should have said, you, God conceived the concept with wisdom, and then he went ahead and he, and he made them. He says he made them with wisdom. Comparing wisdom to action, because from God's point of view, wisdom and action are all the same. Um, because wisdom is, is uh, as far from God as action is from God. Just like you wouldn't say, if someone told you you can grab God with your hands, you would laugh. It's ridiculous. It's nonsensical. God is not anything physical that you can grasp. So too, if someone says you can conceive God, you can comprehend God, you can understand God, it's equally a nonsensical statement because we don't have, we're not God, so we don't have, we don't know what God is. We don't have the tools to comprehend God. God is not intellect that you can, con you can conceive or you can grasp with your mind. Just like God is not physical, God is not intellect. God is not spiritual. God is beyond any definition, any description. It's only our limited framework, our limited frame of reference, the five senses and, and the mind. Um, so to us, the mind is superior to the hand. The hand is at the bottom of the totem pole, and the mind is the intellectual, the philosopher is on top of the, the, the heap, and, the, and the, the physical, the material is all the way on the bottom. But uh, from God's point of view, the, they're all the same. There's no difference between the actions and the hand and the, and the intellect and the spiritual and the philosophical. God is really all the same because God totally transcends the whole frame of reference. God is not intellect, God is not uh, physical, and God is not philosophical, and God is not spiritual. God is beyond any definition, any description. Totally transcends our entire world, our entire being, our entire frame of reference. Even the angels have no clue what God is. Even the supernal wisdom really cannot really grasp God, God's infinite self, because it's totally beyond the, the world of, of, of intellect. God is truly undefined. So everything we're reading from Maimonides is a theory. He can't possibly know. He's, his brilliance, in his brilliance, he's able to theorize what he's talking about. But he can't possibly know. No, but Maimonides is basing everything he writes is based on the Torah. And the Torah tell, tells us that God created us with a mind. And God wanted the mind to understand to the best of the mind's ability. And that the mind could understand whatever the mind, whatever is possible to understand, the mind, the mind could understand. That's why his whole philosophy is based that nothing... There could be nothing illogical about, about Judaism. He says, if science will tell you that Judaism is not scientific, it's a lie. It's impossible. Not that God is bound by science, but God wanted that everything should make sense. Everything should make sense in the logical world. So therefore, there could be nothing in logic that says that it can't be so. Not that logic has to force us to, 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 to you know, compel us to believe everything the Torah tells us, but to say that any belief in the Torah 
that logic says it's impossible for that to happen, he says that's erroneous. That's impossible. Because God created, God is perfect, and God created also the intellect, that even the intellect should also um, agree. And even the intellect, the intellect um, if the intellect is truly honest, the intellect will also could understand and agree with the principles of the Torah. That was Maimonides' supposition. Maimonides' supposition wasn't from a position of logic, that whatever is logical I believe in, whatever is not logical I don't believe in. Maimonides was a believer, the son of a believer. Maimonides was a holy Jew. Everything he wrote was based on the Torah. But his, his assumption was, his basic assumption was, that since God created the intellect, and the Torah says that everything that God created has to be in a way that makes sense to the intellect. So it's impossible to say that, that the science of his day and age, or the philosophy of his day and age, are correct by saying that you can't believe, philosophically it's not true, you can't believe that God gave the Torah, and you cannot believe that God created the world, and God is involved in the world, all the 13 principles of faith. And he proves in his, in his philosophical work, in Murrah and the Vuchim, into the guide to, to the perplexed, he proves how that whole assumption is erroneous. How based on the best philosophy, everything that the Torah says makes sense. And does not go against science of his day. And does not go against logic. And that truth remains till, till this day. If someone tells you that anything in the Torah is not scientific, it's a lie. If someone tells you that it's not scientific, it's impossible that the world is 5,766 years ago, it's, it's a lie. Because an honest scientist will tell you, I can't tell you scientifically how old the world is. It's just assumptions. And, and very flimsy assumptions based on the best knowledge that we have today. But we have no idea. We're making a lot of assumptions about things in the past that we simply have no idea. And isn't it ironic that civilization, as we know it, is only a few thousand years according to everyone? So you have to take a leap of faith that the world existed for billions of years and suddenly out of nowhere, suddenly we have civilization and we have writing and we have... And this all just happened a few thousand years ago. Okay, fine. If you believe that, I have a bridge to show you. I have a bridge to show you. But that's, but, that's, but that's, nothing in the Torah could be against science. It's impossible. An honest scientist will tell you that, that the whole, that it's, that it's not science. People speak with such authority, the world is 14 billion years. What, what are you, it's not science. But people accept it as God, as science. But it's erroneous science. It's not honest science, it's not genuine science. Because it's impossible. If the Torah says something, there's nothing in the world that can contradict it. Because God created the intellect. And the intellect, he created the intellect in a way that the intellect does not go contrary to, to the Torah. If you open your mind, you'll understand logically how it could be. How the world could very, very well be 5,760, based on the best understanding of reality. If you truly open your mind. That was the Maimonides' assumption. So he wasn't working his way up to his faith, starting with logic and working his way back to faith. He started with faith and he worked his way through logic to show that the logic cannot be in conflict with faith. That was his guide to the perplexed. Those who were taken in by the science of their day and age, by the white coats of their day and age, just like many people are taken in by the scientists of today. And, and they just buy into a lot of erroneous assumptions that are simply not true and not scientific, like evolution and the age of the world, and etc., which is simply nonsense. It's not scientific. It's a hypothesis based on a lot of assumptions that simply have no basis in reality. So you have made them, or wisdom indicates, however, that to God, wisdom, the highest level within the world, the highest level within our frame of reference, is as lowly as a sea at the lowest level. To God, it's all the same. God totally transcends our whole frame of reference. 
So we really have no way of grasping God, of knowing God. And that's true of God's essence. But after God, through the symptom, God emanates from himself and, and concentrates himself and manifests himself through wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, you can truly say, as Maimonides says, that God and his wisdom and his knowledge are absolutely one, inseparable, in a, in a, in a mystical unity that we cannot truly comprehend, but it's an, you cannot separate between God, the knower, the known, and the knowledge, and uh, the knowledge and the knowing, it's all one and the same. And therefore, when we say that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's wisdom, what we're really saying is that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's essence. To be continued. Mm -hmm.